This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Jean Schnoda-Bolin. Jean Schnoda-Bolin is a Jungian analyst and clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. She's an internationally renowned lecturer and workshop leader and author who draws from spiritual, feminist, Jungian, medical, and personal wellsprings of experience. Jean is the author of Goddesses in Every Woman and the Tao of Psychology, and her latest audiobook from Sounds True is called Like a Tree, where she invites us to explore our sacred relationship with trees and to uncover the hidden wisdom they have to offer. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jean and I spoke about the characteristics of tree people and the wisdom that is held in ancient trees. We also talked about what it might mean to circumambulate the self and how that circumambulation might have something in common with circumambulating around a tree. And finally, about what it might mean to know one's own assignment in the world. Here's a very heartfelt and inspiring conversation with Jean Shinoda Bolin. Jean, in your new book, you talk about something called tree people. What are the characteristics of someone who might be a tree person? Well, I started to call people tree people versus not tree people uh, when the issue was a tree that was in my front yard that belonged to the homeowners association of which my house and I are, are part of. And when it came time to vote about taking down this tree that was in its prime, a Monterey pine tree that I saw and was drawn to even before I walked across the entry desk into the house. And I lived where there are lots of trees in Mill Valley, which made me assume that people who lived in Mill Valley uh, were tree people that liked trees that were drawn to them. And, And when, to my surprise, a homeowner close by wanted the tree down for view purposes mainly and other people supported it I began to see the difference between those of us who felt that this was a living wonderful tree and why would people want to cut it down and somehow in 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 thinking about what we were talking about, what they were talking about, what our feelings were, it was clear that there's a difference that that for us, the tree people, oh, and I, I summarized it um, in two famous sayings, that a, a tree person versus a non-tree person, the difference between Joyce Kilmer, I think I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree, and that statement by Ronald Reagan, you've seen one tree, you've seen them all. For one, it's a living, spiritual, 
uh, relationship. For the other, it's just a thing, a thing that you own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about the journey that you went through with this tree that you came to have a relationship with, this tree in front of your home. Well, it turned out to be, to be a lost cause. It was a, a saga that went on for about a year and a half or longer, and I did get a couple of reprieves. I also got a lawyer. I also got, I also had choices myself to make about whether I would, say, have a demonstration in front of my house or not. And I did all that I I could short of the demonstration. And then it was being it was scheduled to be cut down when I was away. And I happened to be away at the United Nations for the meetings of the Commission on the Status of Women. And at that point, I could really see how when you treat living things or living people, living trees, um, animals, as things and as property that you have a right to do whatever you have the power to do with them, that there is something about that that makes how women and girls were being treated in lots of places in the world and how the attitude towards trees also is like that. Uh, You know, you look at a tree, how many uh, board feet of lumber is a ancient old growth redwood, for example, versus amazing what this tree is. And when I was at the UN, there's been two streams, really. One was the sort of awareness of the, the ramifications and the political consequences of treating this planet as a, a resource to be used versus a, a part of us, essentially. I mean, that we live here and what happens to every, all life here in some way affects us. And, and, you know, so there's that part. And then there's what I, what I came to do through the loss of this tree, which was to learn about trees and how wonderful they, they truly are and what they do for us. And I ended up feeling that this planet, humanity, uh, the beauty that we have here could be all gone if we continue and end up with not enough trees and too many people. Mm-hmm. So that was part of my saga for sure. And then there was Gloria Steinem's comment when I told her what was going on and, 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 and that when I went home, the tree would be down. She said, remember, Jean, you're a writer, and writers can have the last word. And so that was in the back of my mind. And, and out, of, out of that seed experience of the loss of my tree, I came to many realizations and then wanted to share what I had learned and so wrote Like a Tree, how trees, women, and tree people can save the planet. Now, as a tree person, Jean, I'm going to ask you a question here that may sound a little far out, but did you have any sense that the tree that was cut down in front of your home that it had a 
perspective, if you will, on everything that was happening, that you were in relationship with it like another living being, that it suffered a loss in some way, or that somehow, you know, indigenous people will sometimes say, you know, the tree is looking back at you when you look at it. Did you have any experience like that in this relationship you had with this tree and its loss? I had a a close sense of related. I mean, I'm I was I am I was related to the tree. I still am related to the tree. There's, it's not that like some people I know uh, that I, I I that I actually heard a voice from the tree or something like that. Um, but I had a definite sense that we live together uh, side by side, so to speak. I also have a sense that trees are, especially older trees, have a, have a wisdom and that there's a kind of mutual caretaking that um, if it needed what I could do for it, I would. And meanwhile, it was doing an amazing, just by standing there, it, it you know, I had to learn after it, was cut down about the whole ecology that one tree causes around it because I didn't know, for example, that pine needles are particularly suited for where this tree lived because the tree lived on the side of the hillside with the Pacific Ocean a couple of hills over. So morning fog was something that we, we have. And I didn't realize it, but those pine needles are like distilleries. They distillate, they take the fog, and they turn the fog into drops of water. And the tree then waters everything underneath it. I would go out on my entry deck some mornings, and I, and I thought it had rained overnight because it was that wet. And so consequently, when the tree was cut down, there, the, the the plants that the shade loving plants that were related to it, uh, over which it 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 shaded and provided water. Um, now, now I have to water it. I'd have to water them. Mm-hmm. And I really got a lesson in the interrelatedness of everything in nature. You know, you said as part of this loss of the tree and then the writing of the book, Like a Tree, you studied all about trees and learned some remarkable things. And I'm curious what some of the few things you learned about trees were that really changed you in some way, that really woke you up to something that you didn't know. Well, I'll start with something that most of us do know, and I I knew, which was that we breathe out carbon dioxide, and the tree uses it and transforms uh, what we breathe out into oxygen that we breathe in. So that consequently, we are in this relationship of mutual interdependency. I didn't realize that, like each leaf, is uh, takes sunlight or photons of light and transforms the light within the, in the leaf into sugars, which then uh, feed the tree itself. 
And see, I would think metaphorically as well, and, and we, we speak about, about being illuminated, about enlightenment, about spiritual light, and how spiritual light uh, or light can be transformed by us uh, into actions. And here's this tree that's taking light, real light, and, and transforming it into food for the whole tree and everything that lives within it and, and through it. And, and it's a world because from the leaf that then brings uh, food to the trunk and goes the channels that go up and down the, 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 just the growing edge of each tree. And then the, root, the rootlets that have these mycelli and these, these relationships to, to um, the soil in, that transforms and brings nutrients up and water up. And uh, one of the lovely things, learning about such things is, is the that the fluids come up the tree and are transpires up into the atmosphere so that when there are forests, such as the arboreal forests of British Columbia or Northern California or Canada or the Amazon uh, rainforest, all of them are rainforests because the trees transpire or draw up from the ground into the sky. All of these, this water that then becomes clouds that come down again. And I was reading about the, and have this image of, of water in the Amazon coming up through those trees and, and like as, as the clouds go across the, the, and create the clouds so that rain, rainforests always have clouds over it and the clouds are created in part by what goes up the tree through the leaves up into the clouds, and then uh, the the clouds water the trees and water the minerals off of them and bring them to the earth. And the image of the Amazon was that that um, those trees bring up like green waves that that go up and down an average of six times before they hit the, the, the Andes. And then they hit the Andes and create the largest river in the world, the Amazon. And this is what we're cutting down. The, this, this, this that we, we, that are the lungs of the planet. So, yeah, I got very caught in the marvel and wonder of what trees do for us and how trees also created an earth through which evolution would lead to us but for the but for the trees we wouldn't be here 290 million years ago when trees evolved out of the huge uh, tree fern forests uh, the ferns and the trees cleared the carbon out of the air and the methane and the various noxious kinds of things and uh, allow the sunlight to come down. And so the combination of making the air breathable and, and allowing the sun to come down to, to 
so that all of education could grow makes it possible for us and all living things to be here. I mean, we are indebted, or should be, but we seem to be unconscious of, of what trees have done for us and, what, and why we need them now. So when you say that an old tree, especially, has a certain quote-unquote wisdom about it, do you mean that we can tune in to a type of collective wisdom that's available when we're near an old tree because we can be connected to a more ancient sense of time? Or, Or what exactly do you mean by that statement? Well, one of the things is what I have learned from... Kinhorn, um, what I have learned from uh, people who have had in their ability to tune in messages from the trees. It's fine, Jeannie. I'm seriously a tree person, so you're in good company here. No worries at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I got one of the things in, in writing this book is that I've, I, I realized that on, on one hand, it's the most you know, anatomical physiology of the thing, the tree. On the other hand, it goes more mystical, and I go more mystical and more far out than anything else I've ever written as well. So, so I it, it's I start with um, talking with a woman named Linda Mills, who was driving in Marin County, and she got this message of. She recognized it as not being, you know, a voice in her own head. It wasn't exactly a voice, but it was like what she described as a thought form outside of her head. And it was impressive enough that she pulled over to the side of the road just so that she would be able to listen or hear or feel however she got the message. And it was a pretty simple message, and it was from the trees. And the trees said to her, or she received from the trees that the trees wanted to form a communicative bridge to humans. And she listened, and she knew that that this was something that, if she paid attention to it, it would lead to a life work that would change her. And um, she heard the message. Uh, She started a project, which is growing, called Nature Speaks. And... She then said afterwards, I thought that the tree was specifically speaking to me. Now I realize that it was an all-points bulletin, and I was one of the receivers. So she's doing her thing. Meanwhile, uh, I'm catching up with people who do tune into trees and, and get a sense of wisdom from them. And something Sometimes very specific and uh, meeting Dorothy McLean and here, and then I also met um, Eileen Cady, who, who uh, 50 years ago began Pinhorn. And Pinhorn is is in the in northern Scotland. It's very windy. It's chilly. It's kind of inhospitable to a lot of lush growing things. And when I went to Pinhorn, initially. I'd, you know, I'd heard about the magic of Finhorn. I didn't know quite what I expected, but when I got there, it looked very much like California in, in the gardens of Finhorn. 
And then when I thought about how amazing that it looked like the gardens of California when it was in cold, blustery uh, Scotland, I began to truly appreciate what was accomplished there. And Dorothy found, well, Eileen was, was directed to go there, and, and uh, Dorothy found that she could tune in to plants and trees and hear from them what they needed in order to grow and thrive. And she spoke of them as tree divas or beings of light and, and speaks about each species having its own uh, sort of collective diva or collective being of light. And it, I get the impression that the trees of, of a single species communicate with each other in a very psychic kind of way. I mean, we know about the species of trees in America that the aspens that, that share underground one major root form. But this seems to be much more of an intrapsychic communication of, of particular species. Anyway, uh, what she found is that whether it's a tree or a cabbage, she could tune in and and learn what it needed if it needed something. And the result was that Bin Juan became famous for, among other things, growing 40-pound cabbages. So there's something about seeing the result. I mean, if people say they tune in or they get advice and you can see the result of it, there is something tangible that that truly does uh, is a witness for this kind of communication. So that's part of what, what I've, I've been learning. Um, I know that there's also a sense that I have intuitive. I'm drawn to trees. I mean, I, I, maybe it was because I climbed them as a kid. Maybe it was because I, I, I drew them and, and a little bit later. You know, if, you, if you draw something, if you paint something, and you really, you really, really look at it, and you notice it, and you, and you, and as you do that, there's an appreciation of between you and the object that you're drawing. And from that point on, I mean, aesthetically, I notice trees when I drive. I, I, and, and some of them just draw me as for their. It, it, usually, it's their size and their their age has something to do with it. Beauty has something to do with it. I think. I think when we are drawn to what is beautiful, that is, is a spiritual entry point. This is, this is also the archetype of Aphrodite, who was in ancient Greece. Always love and beauty went together, so that it's part of what we love we see as beautiful, but we have to be able to perceive through eyes that are loving, and again, this is back to the difference between a tree and a tree person and a non-tree person. That that most of us who were are tree people did, as children, have some special relationship. Did you, for example, climb trees, find sanctuary in them? Um, uh, do you notice them? How is it? 
Of course, Jean, as you're talking, I'm thinking of the trees I've loved. And, you know, it's as powerful for me as thinking about old girlfriends, practically. I mean, it's a huge love affair that I've had throughout my life with different trees. What I think is so interesting about your work and the book and the audio of Like a Tree is it starts to unpack for people all of the different reasons why we might be people who have had love affairs, whether they were short ones that only lasted, you know, half an hour on a particular hike one day in a part of the world that was unfamiliar to us, or a tree from our neighborhood from when we were a child. And you're talking about this idea of potentially something like a spirit or a diva in the tree or just the beauty of a tree is helping me perhaps give some reasons to why there might be that great love. That's really what I'm listening for as you're talking is, hmm, I've never understood it. I've never understood the love. I've just known it. It's also that the tree has been sacred to humans for ever, maybe, Um, and that it's an archetype, and it comes up in dreams, and it's a symbol, and being a Jungian analyst, I could truly appreciate how a tree as a symbol then resonates at a soul level with us. We see an outer, I mean, if you have a dream of a special tree, and lots of people do, actually, Jung himself did, and, and wrote about it in, in, and in, in, in the recent book that came out after it had been uh, sort of held by the Jung family in, in a vault because he was, he wrote a, about his active imagination, his, his dream life, his psychic life, and his uh, being on the edge between the worlds of, of ordinary reality and that which he plunged into not knowing whether he would come back with his sanity. And in being awake, when you enter that active imagination world, it it is like being in a very powerful waking dream, and and knowing that this is not real, but it is real. So that that people do this and think that they might be going crazy or such, and and how to discern and what to realize is just an amazing human ability to tune in beyond our rational and measurable five senses into the invisible liminal world where such things as as symbols come to life because symbols really are symbols rather than signs because they resonate at a soul level in us. And so you see a tree that that uh, and and have a sense of awe that one that that soars, say, 385 feet into the sky, which ancient old-growth redwoods do, and you you realize it has been around for thousands of years, and it's been a witness. It's been there. It's been part of this planet for for these years. And the, the, the people who are psychic about trees say that it, it's not the same to say reforest the land with young trees where all of them are, you know, essentially young adults or adolescents, that they do not do something for the planet and for life on this earth like the ancient ones. And people do go to ancient trees, and 
if they are attuned to trees, there is a sense of awe and beauty and wonder and a sense of being in the presence of something that is alive and has its own spiritual or whatever it is. I mean, there's so much in this world that we tune into and and are touched by. We can't really explain it, but we need to trust what that heart-soul connection tells us about what is real, whether the scientists will prove or dispute prove it, uh, that, that we limit ourselves so much by only using half of our perceptive system, which is and half of our thought system, and which is one half of the brain, while the other half really can tune in and accept and receive a whole lot more. So I'm, I'm kind of drifting off with your question, so please get me back to what it was that we started on and this riff. Yeah, well, actually, I think you're right on, which is just our mysterious love of trees and what that is activating inside of us. And I know one of the things you offer in Like a Tree are some clues for people to do a tree meditation. You were talking about Jung's active imagination with a tree. And I'm curious if you could offer us perhaps some hints about what a tree meditation might be like. Well, I do active, I, I do guided meditations um, in my work, workshops. And I often start out with the, well, first of all, like everybody does meditation, there's a need to be receptive by, 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 relax, by relaxing into it. Uh, and so I often say, as I, in a, in a sense, lead them into it, if your psyche is willing and you want to, because you, 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 there, there is always a part of the person that that needs to feel that there is the freedom to go with or not with what someone is suggesting. And I found that starting out with entering a place in nature in which one has a sense of peace and beauty, that that was a good place for people to start the journey. And then I would suggest that they would see at the, uh, at the edge of where they are and be drawn to a special tree. And it might be a tree that they're seeing for the first time, or it could be a tree that they recognize as a very special tree from some place in their past. And people could do this. And I also would have them, just to, to, to learn about active uh, or guided meditation, that you can become the tree if you want to. You can, you can reach for the tree. You can merge with it. You can find yourself like a tree with roots growing into the ground and drawing up nourishment from the ground and, and, and having a 360-degree view of things and, and, and drawing sunlight and, and into yourself. And, and also to consider like a tree survives many years, some of them lean, some of them you know, with droughts, some of them, uh, and, and, and maybe they got struck by lightning and maybe this tree had an infestation, but it still is here, and it is still growing, and that's what we all are. So I had, I had, I had people at some point of in the beginning of a guided meditation uh, become that tree, and it's easy for people to do that, which which says something about 
how this image and we have an affinity. This last time, um, well, I've I just wrote. I mean, I, it's not that I just wrote like a tree. Like a tree came out recently. Um, April twenty second was Earth Day and its official pub date, or its birthday. And so I I, I scheduled a couple of lecture workshops, uh, and for the first time did a completely tree meditation and didn't just use it as the beginning to a a guided meditation. And in this one, it was much the same of, of, the, of going to the tree and becoming part of the tree. And then I suggested that it's possible, if they want to, again, always if their psyche is willing and they want to, that they can stand uh, near the tree and observe that there were people or animals uh, that will be ringing the tree. And these are those important people or important symbols that have been in their lives. And some of them may be still living and some of them may have gone over to the other side, but it's up to the psyche to now draw into this picture those important people. And as they walk around the tree, they have a moment to be in touch with each of these personages as they travel around the tree. And I suggest sometimes, or I did this time, um, that if there's any unfinished business with any of them, that this is an opportunity or a time where they can hear something or say something from the heart. And then when they're ready, move on and go around the tree. And I could tell from the silence during the guided meditation and when I suggested that people come out of it and then just sit or write it down, whatever they wanted to do, because it is like a dream. And and take it in and go over it and remember who showed up and how they felt. And that group just stayed seated. I mean, it was like I suggested that for those that wanted to say and, and think about their experience, to do so, but the others should, this is a break time, that they should leave. Nobody left. <laughs> and and for the next 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so, it was clear that, that they were revisiting, remembering. And this is such an important part of, uh, the, of life in general, uh, to pause, uh, especially after important experiences in which our heart was touched or our soul was touched, to reflect on it, to take it in, to remember, to metabolize. And, and it's, 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 not, it's important always to have experiences that, that resonate at a soul level. But it's also important to take them in and develop further what that experience was. 
Now, Jean, one of the things I'm reflecting on as we're having this conversation is how many different levels or perspectives you have on what it means to be like a tree and what it means to be a lover of trees, meaning there's just the aspect of beauty of trees, there's trees as symbols and what they might evoke in us in a kind of active imagination like you just described. You also, in the book, offer a lot of evolutionary information about trees, scientific information, and there's a strong, very strong social activist theme that runs throughout the entire book. And I want to talk more about that during this conversation. But I'm just curious for you, what was it like to hold all of these different dimensions of being with trees? It was easy because uh, there's something about the form of the writing that that I uh, that resembles for those folks who are familiar with Carl Jung, he uses the word circumambulation of the self, with self being large S. And uh, the self then becomes shorthand for that which is sacred, um, divinity, for God, goddess, Tao, the great mystery, higher power, all that is. It's, it's that which the ego as an observer can tune into but never can fully grasp. And consequently, to, to relate to the archetype of the self, which he also describes as the archetype of meaning. It means that, that for something to have meaning for us at a soul level, that we also equate it with having those qualities of the great mystery or divinity. And we can't take the totality of it in. We can just sort of walk or go around it and get in different times and places in our lives a sense, a partial sense of of this. And so I really ended up writing and absorbing knowledge and experiences and my own intuition and past history with trees as if walking around the subject. And so the, the chapter headings are such things as standing like a tree, giving like a tree, surviving like a tree, sacred like a tree, uh, symbolic like a tree, wise like a tree, where tree is all the dimensions that you mentioned. I mean, I'm thinking, you asked me a while back about uh, when I sort of went off on a little bit of a circumambulation away from the, the question you asked, what I hadn't gotten back to was that the symbol of the tree as the center of of the people that that, that it in 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 dreams and related to when each of the tribal people say in Europe which was majorly treed that they would there would be one special tree that was for them the center of the world and so the tree is in Latin, the axis mundi, the axle of the world, around which everything uh, goes around. So I could do that. I could look at the subject 
and see this piece of it and that piece of it and and know that I am walking around the subject of tree. And I was hoping that my readers would also have the same experience, which I think is also the way people talk about meaningful things. I mean, we're having a, what I'd call a very circumambulation conversation. Well, and interestingly, the guided meditation that you described, we were circumambulating a tree with whoever showed up to walk around the tree with us. Yes, that is that is what we do, that our life is not linear, it's a spiral journey, so that we find ourselves going through, say, difficult times that have a certain resemblance to um, other difficult times, and that our choice of how we're going to respond this time comes up over and over with each turn around the spiral. So that if you are uh, have a problem uh, with a certain kind of person, uh, going back probably to your family, uh, there is the repeated opportunity of here that kind of person comes again. And here is this opportunity to learn from it, to choose not to enter it this time, or to once more try to change what was a pattern that you came into in your family and you are now trying to learn from as you grow older. So we do circumambulate in our life path. It isn't straight. It isn't a straight line at all. It is it is circular, and we keep going around those times when, when for example, uh, certain things were important to us. People remember and reconnect sometimes with, and with the synchronistic events that bring us there too. I mean, I, I think it's always interesting uh, for me to pay attention to unexpected meetings and events and when they start being tied together I have a sense of of oh that which is in me that is drawn to my path which is spiral is coming around again and here we are and this these people and this opportunity is meeting me uh, and I can do something with this now so if it's a tree that comes down in my front yard, um, I can react in many different ways. I certainly was feeling oppressed. It felt like being, being, um, like having a feminine aspect of relatedness discounted by a patriarchal attitude of property owners, for example. It it touches on an activism in me. When I hear about how girls and women are treated in rape and raped or sold or trafficked, when I hear about how a little girl might be sold for four dollars in some place in the world and used, you know, I am I, my heart hurts for one thing, but I am outraged as well. And to become a a, a respond from that place. Uh, of anger is certainly a choice. And there is the other what 
what you don't just do naturally, but whether you stay open to the kind of experience you just had and have a sense of what is it, uh, how will I deal with this loss? Because that's what we always are dealing with. seems like and this is also part of um, what I draw from from so many of of my writings. I you know I speak about how we are spiritual beings on a human path rather than human beings who may or may not be on a particular spiritual path. And it, and it really comes from knowing that human beings in general come into this world and have a sense of having a soul. And if we do, if you once you accept that premise, this is a very interesting experience we're having because an immortal soul comes into this dysfunctional world beginning with a particular dysfunctional family because hardly anybody has, I don't know anybody who has a perfect family. So you have your own variation of dysfunctional family and you are here at a certain time in history and you are here in a certain gender and you have your certain talents and then life is so short and there's joy, there's suffering, there's so much that could go on in this short period of time. What on earth did our immortal souls come to do here? Might there be choices that that we make here that is tremendously significant at a soul level? I mean I mean it does have to do with meaning. And and my activism actually grows out of a sense of being here at this particular time, being a woman in this particular time, being privileged by by having the women's movement affect my life and all women since then that I come in touch with in some way have been empowered with possibilities that women have never had before. And I keep thinking that because we are women, we have certain physiological kinds of ways of responding to stress. We have certain ways of of connecting, which is much more like nature. Uh, the sense of the, how a community of women talk to each other and share and 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 learn from each other and um, it's it's a much more natural nature-like thing than having hierarchy and dominance from the top. What you're saying is reminding me of something in the book, Like a Tree. You quote the Dalai Lama from a 2009 conference saying that the world will be saved by Western women. And I'm curious what that means to you, that sentence. It seems like that's something that intuitively feels right to you. The world will be saved by Western women. Well, I think that we may have just a couple of decades for the the direction that humanity and the planet is, go, planet is going in to either continue what can be a really downhill in which we turn this beautiful planet into a wasteland, either by a combination of cutting down all the trees and having too many people, like Easter Island, or uh, doing it fast with the proliferation of, of nuclear arms and the continuation of, 
conflict and war and conflict and war, the old stuff that is going on in the Middle East and that we will be in per, forever involved in terrorism um, has to do with looking at this particular time, which is crucial because for all the lack of development and faults of humanity, we've also had such gifts of soul and intelligence and uh, the ability to to reinvent and, and I mean humanity is amazing and we have made and done so many uh, new things um, in even our lifetimes so we have that we have the possibility of destroying ourselves and then we have the possibility of evolving and living out a potential that we can only imagine, but we get glimpses of. We have both the intellectual right, left brain that has become so well developed, but in the right brain of us, uh, we have those qualities of, of that fit into the realm of the more psychic and healing and, and connecting and being part of, of everything. And in in heterosexual men, as we do, as we look at functional MRIs, what we see, and I'm, I'm sure this is in general and more about alpha males. I don't know how many males really are getting functional MRIs, but that's a pretty Western, high scientific kind of study. But what they're seeing is that, that these men have asymmetrical brains. It's like to one-sidedness, and that's really what's running the world from a patriarchal dominator over mentality. While women, as a gender, have symmetrical brains, and not only do we have symmetrical brains, but we have many, many more fibers called the corpus callosum that connect right and left brains. This is why we multi multitask. This is why we can we can collaborate easier. This is why we are called the empathic gender. We tune in. And we listen to narratives and stories, and we grow from children on to adulthood through conversations that help us to understand the other person's point of view. We hear stories about uh, disasters and relationships and in, in, in all. So, and we're drawn to fiction, and we're drawn to theater, and we're drawn to, um, you know, it's women who are... are uh, the ones who show up at so many of the, the the courses and things. So we have, say, a gender-specific uh, contribution that we can make to humanity. And it includes, thanks to the work done at UCLA in 1991, a specific different way of reacting to stress. And, you know, we are in high stress time, personally and planetary. And men do fight or flight. And that's actually what we're seeing going on all over the world where where armaments and conflicts and war is, is what it's all about. And women do something different. Their response to stress in women is to do what has been now named tend and befriend or the oxytocin response to stress. A woman in stress relieves that stress not by fight or flight, but by conversations with others she trusts. And as she talks, the stress level goes down 
and oxytocin, which is a maternal bonding hormone, goes up. And oxytocin is enhanced by estrogen, just as flight or fight is an adrenaline reaction that is enhanced by testosterone. And we know that the highest ranking fraternity men or warlords have more testosterone when it's measured than the underlings. So the leaders of the world, the male leaders of the world, are high testosterone, flight or fight guys. And what they need is to be brought into balance with what women do much more naturally. And the United Nations, which has been a truly educational experience for me to go to the Commission on the Status of Women, is to become inspired on one hand and appalled on the other about what happens to women, but also inspired by what individual women are doing and what the UN is doing in recognition of what women can do, which is uh, Security Council Resolution 1325, which is referred to as the Women, Peace, and Security Resolution. It recognizes that women have unique contributions to make to avoid conflict, to tamp it down as it's going on, and afterwards to be part of the peace process. And it has to do with, with, with the ability to uh, really empathize and know who needs what to settle a conflict rather than I win this time and humiliate you, but boy, you'll wait to get revenge on me, which is what alpha male run hierarchies do. Now, Jean, I'm totally appreciating what you're saying, but I'm just curious here to interrupt you for one second. What a sensitive, heterosexual male who's a tree person who's still with us at this part of the conversation might be feeling. Oh, please don't go away. <laughs> because the, the idea of, of masculine and feminine is something that is in both men and women. And this, of course, is a very Jungian perspective on, on things. And I'm also talking about, I mean, to get back to Western women. Western women have become Western women in part since the women's movement in the in the late 60s and 70s. Well, from that point on, there have been a cohort of men related to women who have been influenced by the women's movement, their sons, their partners, their fathers, who have been given the space to grow into their feminine side, into being heart-soul oriented, to to uh, being sons, say, of, of God-Goddess and not just of monotheistic patriarchal God. Uh, it is the activist in the generation of sons that is saving the Amazon and has made a major, had a major effect on saving the, the arboreal forests of, of Canada. It's Greenpeace. It's... Um, it's the, and, then, and then there are the tree people that Andy Lipkus uh, uh, created when he was 16. He started to, to care about the trees in summer camp. And now in midlife, he is, he's got an organization that is building um, and creating urban forests and urban woods. And in California, we have Friends of the Urban Forest, which was created by a man. So... Tree people, active, in fact, some of the most effective um, of, of tree people are the activist 
younger people, men and women. But but when you're in confronting bloggers and things, it's often the young activists, idealistic men who are doing this kind of work, join with older people that have the resources and the connections to to take a demonstration and, and, and make it publicly known and influence the politicians and things like that. So, and in, in the brain research that I, I wrote about more in Urgent Message for Mother, the, the research that was done on functional MRIs uh, on young boys and girls, there really wasn't any difference between the right-left brain. So it seemed as if, in boys and girls, it seemed as if the acculturation of boys made a huge difference as to what happened to the brain, which makes sense because we know it's plastic, the brain, meaning that it grows or from use and disuse, it gets shaped by it. And initially, by the way, it was uh, the fact of there being more corpus callosum fibers between men and between in, in women's brains and in men's brains were done um, at post or an autopsy. And the, the, uh, the, the male people whose brains were symmetrical, that is, had equal right and left brains, were gay men. So it was gay men and women that had way back then. So I'm sure that if the MRIs were studied now, I don't know that anybody is doing it, but I'm very sure that it would it would be the same, that any man, heterosexual or gay, who is interested in music and art has a, a sense of intuitive wisdom, who has uh, uh, who is not into the alpha satisfaction and into power over. Um, you know, I think that we're creating a world that's going that could go more and more in that direction. But meanwhile, I got way away from your initial question, which went back to the Dalai Lama. And why I think the Dalai Lama is right is that because of the women's movement, there has never been, and, and the baby boomer demographic, there has never been a generation or a cohort of women in the history of the world like women in the United States or first world now because of the education, because of the, the uh, entry into to positions of responsibility, into the workforce, into having freedom of choice, to choose religion, to choose reproductive options, um, to live as long, and, and medical advances, we live longer. And we have bonded with each other thanks to the women's movement. This is provided you are archetypally um, have some Artemis or sister archetype in you. But this quality of in numbers, I mean, I speak to well, women who come to, say, a lecture that I'm given. These are women who are curious, educated, um, who have economic resources to come. They've traveled. They could make a huge difference in the direction the world is going. And that's what I'm saying to them, that the Dalai Lama made it clear to a number of women that to take in, in the message personally 
not just generic, although it's generic, like Linda who heard the pre-message. Uh, uh, it's a generic message, but when it's received as a personal one, then it gives that woman a sense that she has something to contribute in her lifetime that could make the difference. And, and during a time of tilt, when we are using the notion of tipping point or reaching a critical mass, each one of us matters. I'm a bit passionate about this. Yes, and uh, it's that passion that we need. Uh, now, just one final question, Jean. In Like a Tree, you talk about people finding their assignment, and clearly there's some sense of, quote-unquote, having found your assignment in this work, Like a Tree. How can someone find and know their own assignment? What advice do you have? First of all, a person uh, realizes that they want to do something more with their life. Usually it is about giving back uh, in some way. And you recognize your own assignment by three things. One, is it meaningful to you? Lots of things come our way. But is this particular possibility, this particular cause, is it meaningful to you? And if there's a strong yes, it has something to do with your the path of your life, that the spiral journey you're on now comes to this point and you recognize this issue, this cause is meaningful to you. Second, is it fun? And I think I'm an example of, you know, just exactly that. Because if it is fun, it taps into your abilities, your talents, your experience, your networks, uh, your creativity. Uh, creativity is fun. And you are going in the same direction with other people that share your values. And they are fun to be with because they are people as deep and as activists and as concerned for whatever it is as you are. And third, is it motivated by love? Yes, it can start with anger, but anger that is hostility and revenge just drains people and makes them lesser. But anger that is built on outrage because what you love is being trashed or hurt or, or destroyed, then it's love for what it is that you are working to save that motivates and the anger is just the tip of what is much deeper, which is the deep love that you hold and carry for that which motivates you. So those are the three ways to recognize an assignment. And when you are lucky enough to, one, find it, and two, step up and take it on, then really you'll find companions, life takes on a lot of juicy qualities, and you'll work hard. But it, but work in work is good. Work is good when when there's a sense of, of joy in what it is you do. Very good. I've been speaking with Jean Shinoda Bolin. She's the author of a new book and audio program, Like a Tree: How Trees, Women, and Tree People Can Save the World. May we all find our assignment and joyfully be on it. Jean, thank you so much for being with us here on Insights at the Edge. 
Thank you, Tammy, and thank you for getting my assignment further out into the world. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>